Hello and welcome to the Somali Professional Podcast. I am your host Samira Ali and you are in the right place for inspirational stories that have A to Z of passion, determination and grit. Welcome. Hello and welcome to the Somali Professional Podcast. This is your host Samira Ali and this week I'm really excited because I have the wonderful Hoden Hassan with me all the way from Nairobi to share her story. Welcome Hoden. Thank you very much Samira. Lovely to have you. I'm really excited to hear your story today. So without further ado, Hoden, would you like to tell us all about yourself? Where are you from? And who are you and what are you from? Thank you. Wow. <laughs> How long do we have? I'm just joking. Oh. <laughs> Where do I start? No, It's true. Okay, give us your one minute elevator bitch then. <laughs> well, okay, I can tell you about myself right now. And then, of course, I can talk about sort of how I got here. But my name is Havan Hassan, and I'm the executive director of Cullen Consulting, which is an international development consulting firm based in Nairobi, Kenya. Um, and a lot of the areas, the particular areas that I focus in are around sociopolitical research, program learning, facilitating meetings, uh, and helping organizations ensure that they're actually learning and adapting. So that's what I do, and that in, in Nairobi is where I do it. Um, and a lot of my focus area is primarily now Somalia. Um, so yeah, that's who I am. That sounds wonderful. It's really just hearing you say what you do. Uh, it's like, I don't know, in my mind, I've already got like a thousand and one questions. Like, it sounds really interesting. <laughs> sure. That's yeah. lovely. So, yeah. um, so how did you get to do mm-hmm. that role where you're at now? Like, do you mind if you walk us sure. through of where, how you started? So from the point, obviously, I, I can um, sense an American accent. So I'm, I'm yes. thinking you've are from originally from America? Yes, yes, you got it right. So I was born and raised in Northern California, um, a city called Oakland, which is in the San Francisco Bay Area. And at that time, um, the Somali community was not as numerous as it is now. Um, and there still aren't a lot in the in the Northern California and the Bay Area. Um, so I, you know, I think just by naturally being the child of immigrants, I've always had an, in, an interest in international um, international affairs, international news. Um, as most, you know, immigrant households, our house was always filled with people coming to visit, to stay, with uh, phone calls from relatives all over the place. So there was always an acknowledgement that yes, I'm an American, but I have links somewhere else. Um, and my father was a was a lecturer, um, and he taught international, uh, particularly African history uh, and African religions, African ancient history as well. So, as a young as a young child, I, as a voracious reader, I would also kind of read, look through his books, and I would read a lot. So, I, it was always inculcated early that I would be interested in a career, whether it was teaching. I didn't know what it was, but I wanted something that was focused on international relations. And so with that in mind, when I went to to university, I I did a a bachelor's degree in political science focusing on international relations. And then I stayed on at the university and I got a master's degree in political science, but focusing on Africa in particular. Um, So I had pretty much known early that I was going to be orientated toward the continent. Um, and I had an aunt who who's been working for the UN for, for many years. And so when she'd come visit us from time to time and tell us about her work, I then kind of narrowed down this, the area that I was interested in and, and I realized I wanted to do international development work. And so with that, after graduate school, I got my first job, which was with the International Rescue Committee. Um, and they had a project in, in Hargeisa, so I was sent there and I was felt very lucky that the first job that I would have in this field was actually, you know, in the country of my, of my, of my, of, you know, my, of the, my origins. Um, Cause I was actually ready to work anywhere. I would have worked Malawi, you know, I would have worked 
anywhere as long as it was international development, but I lucked out in that they were able to send me there. So I spent two years working with women's groups um, and particularly working with entrepreneurs and doing and helping design a micro lending program. And then after that, I went back to the US, um, you know, being the oldest of three daughters uh, and coming from a family that transitioned from my father from teaching to owning his own business. Um, I also uh, was called back to help support the business. So I went back to the Bay Area and I worked and helped the business for about uh, three years or two years or so. And, and then I knew that I wanted to get back into development. So I went to Washington, D.C. With the, with the focus of trying to find some interesting work uh, with the U.S. government because I you know, knew, of course, the role that, that USAID in particular plays. Um, and within, of course, then there were other issues around 9-11 that happened. So I ended up doing a lot of work around civil liberties and civil rights work. Uh, oh, yes, associations. Yeah. Mm. So, you know, you have your plan, Ella has his plan. And, 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 yes. and I spent an amazing um, time working um, with communities around protecting their civil liberties and civil rights right after 9-11. And, um, and then I found my way back to, to, to the East Africa and I got a job with USAID working on Sudan. And at that time it was one country still. It was, but there it wasn't were, north or south anymore. It was just Sudan, wasn't it, at the it time? It was, yes, but there had just been a peace deal signed between the southern rebels and the northern government. So it was clear that they were going to transition into some sort of either their own you know, independence or some sort of federation. So when I was working with USAID, I was working with an office called um, the Office of Transition Initiatives, which is an office within USAID that works in places going through dramatic sort of political transitions. Um, and it's in trying to find quick impact programs that can help bring stability to an area. So our role was, was to help whatever was emerging out of Southern Sudan, um, the governance in particular, how can we sort of jumpstart governance in areas that really hadn't had self-governance in a while? So for a number of years, for about two, three years, I was working um, across South Sudan um, and, and, and supporting communities and, the, and governments to be able to, to, um, to sort of even, you know, construct offices, to, to uh, to have some capacity building around, you know, what does a functional local government look like, um, as well as trying to do some amount of peace building, um, because southern Sudan is is a complex area um, with with various communities um, that still, as you probably, if you read or aware of the recent histories, the latest mm. news, there are still conflicts in southern Sudan. They haven't quite today, addressed, yes, yeah, they haven't quite addressed the underlying conflict issues there. Um, and I then know, I, yeah. yeah, subhanAllah, I mean, this is, this is, a, this is, this is an issue that um, we sometimes forget that we can, you know, try to, try to, once conflict with, with a major sort of quote unquote enemy is resolved, then communities have a way of looking inward and settling mm -hmm. scores and having issues. And people sometimes forget that, that they're, that they need to be focusing on on addressing those grievances among the communities um, the continuous cycle so did you live yes. in sudan all that time for that two years did you say did you say you lived there for two years uh, or were you no, back and forth that's yeah i at that time usaid didn't have a formal presence in south sudan um, we were still operating out of nairobi but spending a lot of time in south sudan there was a whole elaborate um flight uh flight system the un had had flights that would pretty much hopscotch all around south sudan um so i spent the better part of probably half my time in in small communities across south sudan um and then i started shifting a bit more north um and looking at and and, and doing some work in khartoum oh, I see. but okay. that was uh, and then and then i kind of got sucked into somalia work uh in a way that you know wasn't you know, again, by chance, I had been, I had been stuck in Nairobi for, for a couple of months, um, because there were at that time, there were some political issues between the US government and the government of Sudan. So they were not letting, um, they were not letting diplomats uh, into Khartoum, uh, or making it very difficult. So while they were sorting that out, Somalia started to be back on the radar, um, as you had, uh, back then you had the Islamic Courts Union, who was in charge of Mogadishu, 
um, and you also had the 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 governments kind of an exile that was in Baidoa and somewhat based in Nairobi and they were starting to have talks then so there was some hope that there would be some opportunity um, to bring some stability back those talks eventually failed and then the Ethiopians uh, in, in entered Somalia in late December 2006. So while I was stuck in Nairobi, I was tasked by my office in um, in Washington DC to sort of keep an eye on, on Somalia. It, you know, is there a potential for, for us to do some programming if, if, if there's a hint of, of some sort of peace and agreement? So I was doing a lot of connecting with uh, with people. You know how um, we Somalis are, you just are able to reach out to one and two and they're able to connect you to, to many more. Yes, we've got the so network, we've got a natural we've, network. Yeah, very generous too, Masala. We're very generous with they our network. We are, we are indeed. Yeah. yeah, so I was able to reach out to a lot of uh, interesting people and do a lot of interesting reporting. And I fed that reporting to my office in Washington, D.C., the USAID. And then I also shared it with the embassy, which was a very tiny embassy at that time. It was just a special envoy, a political officer, and then a local political staff member. And then, um, and so at that time, the ambassador, uh, Michael Rannenberger, had, had, had asked my boss if I could be seconded because they felt, look, we, we could really use her support at this time. Um, uh, while while these issues between Khartoum and DC are, are being you know are stalling any real trips, let let her come and work with us. Um, so I ended up shifting to the embassy um, as a secondee, and I ended up working one year there to support, you know, um, to support the embassy in terms of being able to make contacts with key Somali actors to help understand what was going on. And if you can think back, it's been a long time, but 2007 was a very difficult year for Somalia in particular because you had the, mm. yeah, if you can remember, you had the, the Ethiopian invasion and occupation. You had the emergence, you know, but it's when ICU ended up um, collapsing. You also had the emergence of, of Al-Shabaab, but also you had some intra-clan conflicts. And so it was quite a difficult uh, year for Somalia. Um, and after about a year, I, I decided it was really important for me to get back into development and um, political, being a political officer was very interesting. And it was all about talking and learning and connecting um, and, and writing to share that information. But I also wanted to do, right? I, I wanted to actually find ways to actually get, um, to see what could be supported and who could be supported. So Alhamdulillah, there was a position opening at USAID Somalia and so I, I went into their office, um, and I and I worked there from 2000 and January 2008 until I left in uh, December of 2016. Um, so oh, wow. I, yeah, I worked eight years. Very long time, mashallah. Yes, <laughs> quite exactly. a long time. And all the experience that you had in that eight years doing and and, and your transition to the um, embassy that, like we said, how often yeah. do you get that opportunity? What a great opportunity! Yeah, alhamdulillah, I've definitely felt. Um, felt like it was a great opportunity and, and to understand the various workings of even how the U.S. government works, you know, what does it mean to work in an embassy? What does a political officer do, you know, and how can and how critical it is to really open up the embassies so that they have contacts with a wide group of stakeholders? You know, there's always the potential that that they don't necessarily understand the full context. And so that was that was that was an eye opener for me, for sure. Um, and I and I definitely felt lucky to have that. That, that experience. Um, and then working at USAID, having that experience to really help um, to build the program from a small office of just three people. When I started in January 2008, by the time I left, we were probably closer to 25 to 27 people. Um, and, to see Somalia, yeah, and to see Somalia also um, and, exactly. and in various parts and even in Somaliland in the north, you know, to, to grow and to be more stable and to, to uh, we have the Somalia has its challenges, no doubt about it. But if you can, if anybody can remember how it was in 2007, and 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 still say that oh nothing much has changed, then I then I, I'm not sure you're seeing the full picture. Um, no, we have come. Positive. We we have come. Yeah. We have come a long way from 2007, 2008 to now, but we still have a long way to go as well, right? 
Uh, yes, yes, that that's for sure. We do. We do have a way to go. It's just the process. It's the process. It's about people going in there. And like we said, you know, change doesn't happen overnight, but it's just advocating and doing the work. And, you know, it, mm-hmm. it, it's a big process, honestly. So, uh, no, kudos to you, honestly, being yeah. in there. I think it's, I don't know, like in, when you're doing that kind of work, sometimes don't you feel like, oh, like, you know, like you said, you know, you want good results. You want to be helpful to your country because obviously you're yes. working for a country that you're originally from as well. So obviously you mm-hmm. have the best intention for them. And like you said, sometimes when things are not going according to the plan or you want to see more quicker change, it's one of those things. I mean, how do you keep yourself in check where you just think, okay, do you think to yourself, patience, hold on, patience, hold on. Or how do you keep going? <laughs> yeah, no, you have to, you know, I think there are a couple of ways to keep motivated and to keep going. Um, I think one is is that, you meet amazing people um, and inspirational people, especially when I travel in the country, um, whether it's the lady selling tomatoes, you know, in the marketplace, or it's the person who's just come back from wherever and opening up a cafe, or it's the, the you know, taxi driver who's never left, you know, and talks about his or her story, uh, mostly his story. Um, so those are the people who show, who, when, I, when I see their resilience and despite all of that, the, their hope, um, uh, that is what motivates me, right? Is that is that is a recognition that things have improved, and that while there are lots of challenges, there is still like the the cynicism hasn't really hit Somalia yet too much in terms of people who feel like oh nothing will ever change, you know everything is just corrupt or everything is just kabilat or you know clan politics or this or that. There's still a strain of optimism that that is still there. Um, light and, at the end of the tunnel yeah and I think that's oh, yeah. what motivates me because I think if you look at Somalia from the perspective of Twitter or international media or the news you would be natural to feel hopeless right because on Twitter it's always people yelling and screaming at each other <laughs> and if you focus <laughs> on the common international newspapers it's always about you know, a bombing, it's about a bombing, bombing. yes, an explosion. Uh, it, it, it's never really the great stories that come out in mainstream media. But however, yes. if you do follow, I've noticed if you do follow people that are actually living in Somalia, Somaliland or mm-hmm. Portland or, you know, in, in, in the regions of Somalia and you actually yeah. follow their social media, the stories that they report is completely different and stuff like that. Obviously, I am not dismissing that, you know, yes. we still, like I said, we've got a long way to go and stuff especially in terms of peace for Somalia mm-hmm. um, but then like you said the people are actually sharing amazing stories there's a lot of entrepreneurship that's going on and it's mm-hmm. really inspiring and I think for people like me who haven't mm-hmm. been back home for I don't know mm-hmm. god knows how long subhanallah whatever which is a trip is definitely overdue um, yeah. it, it, that hope that, that gives us hope seeing those positive stories you know yes yes and it, sh- it should because um, you can't live without hope can you, right? I mean, you can't kind of have the motivation to get up and, and, and work um, and, and, to, and to even, you know, think about, if you're thinking about, let's say, Somalia and you're thinking about contributing and supporting and even going for a holiday, like none of that happens if you, if, if, if you think it's a hopeless place. Right? No, absolutely. So, I, I agree so with you, sister. That. Mm. No, I agree with you, sister. Inshallah, it's like, you know, we just all just keep hope. Hope is the only thing that keeps us forward, inshallah. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. exactly. So what would you say with your work? What yeah. are the main, what are the issues or the main problems that you want to address in your international development career? That's what I would like to know. So obviously yeah. you've got your own organization. Mm-hmm. You're doing some amazing work. Um, so, uh, But I just wanted to find out, obviously for our listeners and stuff, what are the main issues or the problems that you want to address in the international development um, area or in your Yeah, career? yes. Well, you know, that the answer to that has changed over time, interestingly enough. When I first started doing international development, I thought I had that sort of typical, I think, I want to say naive, kind of do-gooder thing. Like if we just come and we have a certain amount of money, that the problem will be solved, right? It's just a, it's a, it's a financial, it's a financial thing rather than, understanding that the challenges that affect fragile states, fragile countries like Somalia, are challenges that need to sort of be unpacked and understood. And 
at the same time, and probably even more so, I've realized now is that ultimately you really need to empower people to be the ones who determine what their problems are and what their solutions are, right? So it's not for an external organization to come in, develop a project and say, oh, okay, you just need to build schools and then train ki kids, I mean, and train teachers, which is, which is definitely something that needs to happen. But then within the context of understanding, okay, so it, is that the price? priority here and if it is the priority what is the best way to get to it right what is the best pathway to improve educational opportunities for our youth in Somalia um, and so sometimes the most obvious way isn't the right way and so some and and in, a, in an environment where you have a lot of trust building that needs to happen you know over 20 years of of, of frayed relationships at at the local level and at the national level, there's a lot of work that needs to be built around sort of building that sort of that social cohesion and that trust. Um, and so what what I think what's evolved from in the past, you know, just sort of doing things and, you know, providing funds to build this or build that, what I what now want to sort of help address in my work is trying to center the very people that we that, that we are supposedly helping, center them in helping figure out, you know, what their issues are and how to address them, um, and so, uh, and so, so, and so that's really at least a cool and and, and with like-minded um, Somalis and other and non-Somalis who also believe in the idea that you really need to reimagine how we do international development, um, and we really need to um, focus on really local-level solutions. Um, and, I, and, I, and, and, and Somalis, mashallah, are very much already doing a lot of that stuff. I, they already are finding ways to, to raise money for schools and address sort of local level conflicts and be able to, um, to support, you know, higher education. You have a lot of higher education institutions that are, some of them a bit shady, <laughs> but yes. some of them also... <laughs> <laughs> I heard there are more universities than yeah. secondary school or something like that. I mean, yeah, is that true? Yeah. I don't know if that's true, but I wouldn't be. I mean, again, the, 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 some of the challenges are around like um, uh, uh, trying to have regulation. So for, for me, the Somalia context is very interesting in that the private sector, for the most part, has stepped in in the vacuum of a government and stepped in and done most of the stuff. Right. Health and education, mostly private. People go to private clinics and they get either tutors or they go to private schools. And so now you have an emerging government that's trying to begin to, to try to shape the way these activities or these services are being, being provided. Um, but you know there's always gonna be a bit of a clash because you have the private sector who's done it the way it's done it. Um, and then you have the public sector that doesn't actually have the ability to, to enforce. Um, of course, yes. Right? Mm -hmm. They don't have the resources and they don't have they the They don't capacity. have the resources mm -hmm. and the capacity. Yes, you're yeah. right. I can see what you mean. Yeah. So, so it's, this, it's, it, it's, it's, a, it's a process. And there are no all bad actors and there are no all good actors either. I mean, meaning that you, you have private sector as well that would say, listen, We've been doing this for so long, right? Uh, we're happy to to have the government come in, um, but we also need to really like be clear about everybody having equal access, right, to the and everybody playing a role. So you don't have organizations or companies that are having monopolies, right? Um, and then on the public sector side, you see that there is a real need for regulations. Right? You, 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 need, you need to make sure that the medicines that come into Somalia are not expired. <laughs> right? You need to make sure that when you're um, building buildings that there is some standardization so that there's no collapse. Um, that's true. So, so yeah, so, so, so that's kind of the Somalia is in that sort of messy growth period, state building period, where they're trying to work through how to do that right in a way that um that helps with 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 uh, inshallah helps with ultimately uh, making the playing field equal for everybody and actually beginning Absolutely. to have a government or governments that have resources so you don't have to wait you don't have to have the international community pay your teacher salaries right you don't have to have the international community you know giving everybody vaccines right you, your government can also do that so there's 
a lot of things that a government needs to be doing. Um, and inshallah, they, they will start to develop the revenue systems to do that. Uh, inshallah, they will. So basically, if you were to summarize what you mm-hmm. do um, mm-hmm. and you had to explain it to me like a five-year-old, how would you explain <laughs> it? Oh, that's, that's funny that you asked that because I have friends that I went to, to college with and I, I might see them every few years and they always ask me the same question. They're like, Havan, what is it that you do again? Um, so obviously I have not mastered that five minute, uh, that five, what do you call that one minute elevator pitch. But um, I mean, in a nutshell, what, what, I, what I do now is as a consultant, I will work on a variety of assignments. Um, and most of those assignments are either coming into an organization and let's say giving them feedback on their strategy. So if they're putting together a strategy to let's say do political engagement for the upcoming elections, um, I will help sort of them look through that strategy, provide guidance. This is what you could do to actually achieve these results. This is what you could do to measure those results. So basically when you have a program, just ensuring that it is, that it could be effective in the Somalia context, um, I also do facilitation of uh, meetings. Um, so there's lots of opportunities where I mean, people, not 2020 was a bit challenging. So a lot of that was, was online, but normally bringing together. So for example, the Somalia Stability Fund was an organization that I was doing um, facilitation support for. So they would bring in all of their partners from Somalia. So they were a fund that had, I think over almost 50, maybe, somewhere between 20 and 30 partners, most of them Somali organizations who were doing a variety of projects from construction to, you know, to peace building, to training local governments in basic, you know, bookkeeping, like all sorts of activities. So they would come together either in Somalia or in Nairobi, and I would lead a three-day process, a three-day meeting, facilitate where they're sharing what they learned, what were their lessons learned, what their challenges were, and ultimately, what, how they can adapt um, and how they can share their experiences. So facilitation is something I really enjoy doing um, because I, I, like to, I like to work with people and I also like to create an environment in which the conversation flows um, and, is, and is able to, uh, to get actually the results they need. Um, and I also do uh, a lot of research, um, research on a variety of areas. So I just finished a, a research paper for uh, the Ministry of Interior and for the UN um, that was focused on um, uh, uh, an operation called Operation Barbado, which was an operation that the, where the government tried to recapture five towns in the Lower Chevelle region. And so my research was really looking at because and the goal was to bring stability to these areas. So the paper that I wrote that that's public was just looking at to what degree did, the, did this actual operation bring stability to these areas? What what could they have done better? What did they do well? And, and how can and how can that inform further efforts to try and bring stability to other parts of Somalia? So those are the, the types of of um, um, types of assignments that I that I tend to have. Um, yeah, and and it's mostly mostly Somalia. I've done some work in Kenya as well, um, but it just there's just enough. There's a lot of work. <laughs> Not surprisingly, there's a lot of work on Somalia. Absolutely, I can imagine there's a lot of work. I think it's a very um, niche area. Obviously, I know there's a lot of obviously a lot of other Somali and a lot of organize other Somali people and a lot of organizations that do work in similar fields as you are. But like mm-hmm. you said, because obviously the country is so big and mm-hmm. there's just a lot of work. It's enough work to go around all the consultants and all the organization. Correct? Yeah, there 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 is, and um, there's enough work to to go around. That's for sure. That's for exactly. sure. No, that sounds really good. No, I really liked how you explained it and stuff like that. Because I was like, ooh, I always use that question or whatever. And I'm like, yeah, can you explain X to me like I'm a five-year-old? Just so I make sure that I actually get it and I nail it, especially when I'm not familiar with certain – obviously, you're, you're, everyone is familiar with more um, sectors mm. than others, isn't, isn't it? Yeah. So obviously, I overall know what international development is and the role of consultants and stuff. But it was just yeah. really nice to hear it, how you – 
actually do it with your organization so thank you for that Hoven. so my you. next question to you is um in all the time that you're obviously doing all those work whether when you were self-employed yeah. or when you actually worked for USAID etc I mean just if you had to pick out maybe two key, key mm. achievements or something mm. that brought you the most joy and pride what mm-hmm. would you say the two highlights if you were to choose any yeah um i would say that I, probably first and foremost I, I felt pride especially when i you know when i left usa the somalia office in particular i de- i felt a sense of pride of being able to help build that that team you know, from the beginning, not only build a team, but build a program. Um, We were a small program back in 2008, um, and we were focusing just on a few areas. Um, And as the interest in Somalia increased and the budget increased, you know, being able to hire more people, bring them on board, help design more programs. um, And, and then, and then even as uh, the last couple of years, it was really focusing on how it transitions from an office to a mission. So doing all of the the groundwork, the 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 HR, you know, work, the forecasting, the budget, so that when I left, you know, it was a it was an office of you know between 25 and 27 people, and then they were they were absolutely ready to then transition to a full mission status, which just means that you have a mission director, and now they have a mission director who's based in Mogadishu. And so there's a sense of pride of really being able to build, build a team and then um, build an office. And in terms of specific projects, I think what brings me a lot of pride is a project that we did that was called Transition Initiatives for Somalia, um, which was a project that was always in the back of my mind when I got to to the USA Somalia office because having come from OTI, which was an office that I talked about, Office of Transition Initiatives, which does a lot of very interesting, flexible, adaptive programming um, that's really designed really to help you um, to help communities to help communities stabilize and, and contribute to 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 political cohesion and um, and stability and so. When I got to USAID, I found that a lot of the projects, like once you put money into it, we didn't have much impact in sort of shaping it and changing it. And I was being an optimist, I was optimistic that that the situation would improve and change. And so what I did was help design a a project that was going to uh, allow for short, um, uh, what are they called? short-term activities, so a pool of activities that could be designed um, and could be adaptable to wherever you are in Somalia. Um, but that was really about how to bring communities together. Uh, and it was focused specifically on areas where um, where there was peace and where, where, where stability finally kind of came roots, in particular areas where maybe Shabab had left or areas where there was two clans fighting and they had reached peace. And the, and the idea was how can we use our programming to go into communities and to and use use the the incentive of funding um, to help communities come together and to be able to do really interesting um, and pro- programming, and that project really ended up doing um, focusing completely on the communities and letting them choose what they wanted to do. It wasn't myself or my team. Nobody said would go into a community like Baidoa and say, okay, we're going to do a water project, we're going to build a prison, I mean, a police station, and we're going to build a youth center, we're going to do this, this. It, instead, you brought, you, taught, you brought the key community members together and you said, we understand in this area that there is a desire to build social cohesion and to build ties and to have stability. Here we have a budget of, let's say, 500,000 US dollars. You know, what can you identify or three or four projects that could build stability and explain how you'll get it. And across Somalia, communities came together and developed projects based on their budget. Um, and as a result, you started to see that just by bringing them together and having help and having them be able to, to select these projects, they were able to um, to build a sense of confidence both in their local government, because we made sure the local government was part of that. And long story short, by the time the project was over, it was a hundred million dollar project, if you can believe, between 2011 and 2016, 
And if you go from Zela to Kismayo, you, the, and you mentioned TIS, people will tell you what kinds of activities that they were able to do from the coast of Puntland, you know, all the way down to, you know, to Gedo next to Kenya. There's, there are 800 activities from schools, from building local offices, roads, um, you name it. And, and it was really and uh, lights, um, you know, activities that brought, brought, brought people more confidence in their local authorities. Uh, and, and that I think is one of, one of those activities. And now they're actually on the third iteration of that project is going to be coming out soon. They're, they're on TIS Plus, which is the second version of it. So it's, it's good to sort of a sense of pride that we were able to transform um, a program and really have it be a Somali. When they say Somali-led, I mean, this was a Somali-led as the communities actually decided what they wanted to do. So that, that project was something that made me, makes me proud. Yeah, absolutely. And so it should. It, I really like it when I hear about, you know, how um, an organization brings the local people to take charge and you're asking the local people, the residents, what is it that you actually need and how we can help you with. I've always, obviously, I've worked in the past as well with um, um as a HR for like different organizations and stuff like that. And I, and I remember one of the things that they will always say is we don't normally just tell people whatever, do X, Y, and Z. It's all about having a conversation and seeing how can we help you and um, and having that long-term sustainability. So I really like how you basically explained that part. And absolutely, you should so be so proud of that. I think that's uh, <laughs> the fact that there's even going to be a TIS too, it shows us its, its impact. And that's the kind of things that I like to see. And I'm sure a lot of people like to see that rather than something where you have a short-term project and then before you know it, it's forgotten and you know you're back to square one so those are the kind of development that I like no that's really nice to hear thank you Holland mm, thank you yeah wonderful <laughs> and what would you say is in terms of um, obviously you I'm sure you must have had many challenges in your career so if uh, how did you overcome challenges um, I think first is, is really beginning to recognize like what are your what are challenges that are, that are of your own making you know barriers that you place in front of yourself you know versus like actual challenges where where, where you need to to, to to sort it out and 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 I think having mentors for me was really important to to bounce ideas off um, and to provide solutions um, when when you when when they come about. Uh, ultimately, I would say um, most of the challenges were whenever you work in a big bureaucracy, <laughs> you also have challenges around trying to move things fast because for you, everything is urgent, right? Everything we need now, we need to do it today. We, need, you know, we made commitments. And so just working through a bureaucracy in a way that, that, you, um, that you make sure that you are friends with everybody in contracts, <laughs> make sure you're friends with people to finance, make sure you're friends with, and you're able to, to, to have I mean, relationships in the workplace are so critical to smoothing things over um, and people beginning to see things through your perspective. So the challenges around moving things in a bureaucracy, I think I, I tried to, to counteract that by just making sure people understood my, my vision um, and also just having very respectful relationships across the board yes yeah. yes to respect i think a lot of people undermine how important respect is and to, to be respected and to respect yes. people that will take you far in life absolutely absolutely and don't ever you know everybody can help you from the the the, the admin secretary to to the head of the head of the you know program everybody has has an opportunity everybody has the ability to, to help you um, and you just Absolutely. I agree. No matter what their position is, there's a way that mm -hmm. they can all help you and, th and there's a way that you can help them. So uh, exactly. I agree. Treat people <laughs> with respect <laughs> and common decency and you will certainly see the fruits of your labor. I'm with you. That's a great one. Thank you, Holland. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and what advice would you give your younger self or maybe to somebody who's listening in what like looking back and reflecting back what advice would you give yourself for somebody um 
so sorry you would give mm-hmm. your older sorry yourself looking back look at me i can't talk now what advice would you give your younger self or what advice would you give somebody for example who really wants to get into international development because that's a really hot topic and there's people mm-hmm. day in day out who are always trying to get in i remember like you know working for unicef and mm-hmm. um a lot of the other NGOs, one of the, a lot of the times when we look in the application forms, we'll get like thousands and thousands and every um, application form or majority of them will start with, it's my dream job to work in, you know, and um, mm-hmm. so, so it's a very hot topic, it's a very hot subject. Um, so what advice would you give to that person and what advice would you give to your younger self if you had to look back? Yeah. Yeah, I think there were two pieces of it, right? One in terms of the younger self is just to always check in with, with yourself and remind yourself of where you want to go and how you want to get there. Because I find sometimes you can find yourself doing the same thing and you're comfortable, but you haven't actually challenged yourself. Um, so just, just, you know, take the time. Uh, everybody c- can choose how often they do it once a year, twice a year, but make sure, you know, if, if you have a vision of where you want to go, um, always make sure that where you are is actually helping you get to where you want to be. Because um, I think I think that that's important. Um, and in terms of advice, I would say really it's really about networking, building your network, and not being shy about reaching out to anybody. You know, if you see somebody who has either information or experiences or anything that you can learn from, do not be shy. Reach out, send an email, say you know I'm really interested in in, in working you know in in finance. Um, and I see you're working here. Would you have time for a cup of coffee, or or even a you know 20, 15 minute call? I would I would love to learn more. You know, just making those contacts is ultimately how I got most of my jobs. It was just reaching out to somebody and letting them know this is what I want to do. How can you help me? Do you know anybody? And everybody has a Rolodex. Everybody has a list of contacts. And before you know it, they've connected you with somebody who connected you with somebody who finally connected you with that person who told you about a job opportunity that was perfect for you, you know? Um, and so I, and so that's really important and just getting people who understand what you want to do and can be your cheerleaders. Um, do not feel at all shy or embarrassed or hesitant to reach out to anybody. Anybody is what I would say. Those are great words of advice, especially I like when you said, yeah, do check in with yourself because we all tend to sometimes just kind of put our own self-development sometimes last, right? I, mm-hmm. I like what you said about the, yeah, don't get too comfortable, check in with yourself. I personally like to check in with myself like every three months just to see mm-hmm. how I am doing. <laughs> I mean, yes. I mean, I, I do, yeah, just to see like, okay, the last three months, how far did I come, you know, or, and what do I want to do in the next three months and so on. So, so in terms yes. of like having goals, would you agree? Exactly. Uh, my friend and I, we, um, we had taken a trip a couple of, was it, when was the last time we actually were able to get on a plane? I think it was last year. And exactly, we were taking thanks this Thanks to COVID-19. We, yeah. <laughs> exactly. So we're all still we were, at home. <laughs> yeah, we, we were sitting, we were at Amman, Jordan, we were sitting and we, we saw this beautiful view and we asked ourselves, okay, we said it's September, 2019. By September, 2020, what are some things that we want to accomplish? Um, and it was, it was good to always, and I would recommend that to have somebody who can be your accountability buddy who can check on you and said, hey, Havan, you said you wanted to write, you wanted to write three pieces, you know, or you wanted to um, do an assignment, you know, outside of Somalia or whatever. Um, that requires you to sort of be able to then to say, okay, let me actually put this in my, in my to-do list this week is to draft an article or to do X, Y, and Z. So yeah, if you don't, I mean, you, you know, before you know it, days, weeks, months, years can pass by. And you actually haven't done anything to contribute to your other goals outside of work, by the way. Work is outside important, of work, yes, exactly. work is important. Outside of work, yeah, exactly. But life is also important. <laughs> you're not um, defined yeah. by your job, right? No, you have you're to remember not. that. Yeah, your job is is one thing. Your business is one thing. But you're at the end of the day. I'm still Samira Ali, you're Hovan um, Hassan, you've got your own goals that you want to achieve in your own personal life. So I, I really yes. like that. I, th- I think yes. you nailed the, sorry, what do they say? You nailed it 
on the head. <laughs> yeah, you hit the nail on the head. Exactly. That, that's right. <laughs> uh, thank you. Yeah. And what would you yeah. say? Isn't so. While we're on the subject, then, what do you say are your daily positive habits, routine, and self care? Wow, I wish I had daily positive habits. <laughs> um, I would think that uh, I, I don't know if it's daily, but I what I what I think is important, and especially I think for everybody who's experienced you know this crazy year of 2020 is nurturing your social connections, right? Nurturing your, 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 your friends and your family and, and just making sure you have those connections um, and taking time to go out to dinner or to go visit friends. I think that's, for me, that's, I mean, it's also whatever makes, brings you joy. So for me, bring, what brings me joy is like having a good laugh with friends, you know, over good food, you know, or family or going somewhere that I'd never been before. Um, experiencing things that, that that are new to me. So I think it, it's also good to try to make sure that you have that within your within your calendar to say, this is what I'm looking forward to. You know, I'm looking forward to X, Y, Z. Um, I think it's important to do that, you know. And self-care is just, it's really about recognizing also when you have and I think it's hard, especially for women, for us to, to do this, is to be able to check in on yourself when the level of stress has just almost reached a breaking point. And you yes, need to just to learn the... to say no. I think saying no is really a, probably one of the biggest self-care <laughs> tips that I'm anybody can have is recognizing when to say no. <laughs> I'm with you. Saying no, it means boundaries. Boundaries, boundaries, boundaries are important for self-care. And this is something that I'm still learning. So, you know, when you said mm-hmm. oh, a lot of people struggle with it, I put my hands mm-hmm. up. I struggle with it big time. Self-care yes, sometimes gets put, yeah, mm-hmm. it gets put on the, um, the least of the priority list. And you just think to yourself, come on, you can't pour from an empty cup. So yes. take time to recharge and not feel guilty about it. Yes, it's funny because I always think about that when you're on a plane and they always, whenever they're giving you that safety message and they're like, parents should make sure that they, that they, that they have put on their, um, whatever that thing is, uh, to, to be able to, to breathe uh, oxygen. Make sure you put that on before you put on your kid. <laughs> I'm like, yes, make sure you're healthy and have the capacity to save your child. It's the Actually, same <laughs> concept of making sure that you, <laughs> that you have the ability to, to have something to give right exactly exactly and honestly when i first heard that on a plane i think this is was prior to children and whatnot like you know me having kids and stuff i just thought what are they talking about you know really of course i'm gonna save my kids first (laughs) (laughs) because you don't think about it logically do you (laughs) yeah 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 true no, 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 I agree with you. I think that's a, 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 a another brilliant point. Self-care. Do not forget yourself because you cannot pour from, or like you said, you know, you need oxygen to <laughs> to live, but you can't pour from an empty cup. So, yeah, look after yeah. yourself and then you can yeah. be your best version, basically. No, I like that, Holden. Thank you. Yeah, and sure. would you, who would you say is your biggest role model? I mean, I don't think it'll be a surprise, probably. And I'd be curious if you hear about it, whether it's a, you know, you've heard that uh, most people say parents, but for me, my parents have definitely been uh, my biggest role models. Uh, my father was was self-taught. Um, he left Somalia at a young age, around 10, and then ended up going to Arusha, Tanzania, um, where he um, didn't actually enroll in school. He worked at his uncle's uh, business, but he also just taught himself how to read and write and ended up getting a scholarship to study in the US. And so because he was able to do that, uh, he, he then went on to, to get a, a graduate degree and he taught at Stanford, taught at UC Berkeley. Um, so he's just an example to me in grit uh, and determination. Um, and he always said, I mean, my sisters and I always talk about his sayings, you know, he would say certain sayings like, you know, just go for it, why not? you know, as a way to encourage us in whatever we wanted to do. And then my mother is, for me, um, a role model in sort of having empathy and emotional intelligence. You know, she just has just always been there for us and, you know, moved to the U.S. with no language skills, no family support, barely any tiny Somali community. Um, And then she was really able to raise, you know, to raise my sisters and I um, with all the love and support that you could imagine. So they, they are my role models for sure. 
and they are sound like amazing role models honestly like you know i think with parents mashallah you know we're lucky to have such parents or anyone like you know who's who, yeah. who basically who are there for you so i agree with you i think parents as role models that you cannot go wrong or whatever because they're your earliest influence and they influence yes. you throughout your life so yes. it's definitely a blessing to have your parents alive or to have your parents like you said raised you and you know gave you all of these um knowledge for future mashallah it's beautiful yeah yeah alhamdulillah that's nice so did your mom move to um like basically your mom basically when she moved she, did she have you guys in america already at that time um she had you know when she she uh, married my dad and then she moved to california and then soon after i was born and then my sisters were born um so yeah no she raised us she had so you us all born in california yes we were that's so cool <laughs> so you guys got to miss out the uh, the part of the qah, they call the qahi yeah i know <laughs> the, the, those, exactly exactly that, i think that was a lucky time for you guys honestly and stuff like that and mashallah your dad sounds like a great man as well he's great the way that he self-taught and he went to on to teach in lots mm -hmm. of other different universities as well so no mashallah that sounds really really good i'm really yeah. um it's so beautiful just hearing stories of parents and their struggles and you know what they had to overcome just so they can to give their children the next opportunity that's beautiful thank Absolutely. you for that sharing that with us yeah. thank and, you um so basically we're coming up to the end of the interview now so mm -hmm. this is the part where you get to shout at yourself your organization and <laughs> uh, because obviously after everybody hearing your story they'll obviously want to connect with you they would want to check out your um social media so i just wanted to find out from you where can our listeners connect with you online if um please okay. go ahead sure so um so you can connect with me on or anyone can connect with me on my website kulan consulting and that's kulan k-u-l-a-n and consulting all one word dot com or on linkedin um or on twitter um it's hodan m hassan um all one word on twitter um so yeah those are the those are the places online that you can reach me fantastic that sounds two great places and what we'll do as well is for our listeners we are going to also put this on our social media so this will be on twitter and it will be on instagram and linkedin so definitely do keep up with us on there um obviously <laughs> with this whole social media thing you do try to get on it but obviously we're not going to be on tiktok that's somali professional <laughs> podcast and I, I don't think we're going to be on tiktok yet but do look up <laughs> do look out for us on twitter and linkedin and instagram that's where we're going to be and yes mm -hmm. and I will definitely share Holden's details on there but I just want to say Holden I really really loved hearing your story I just want I just want to say thank you very much for um basically bringing us joy today and uh, and I hope to inshallah speak with you again soon and to our listeners I would like to say thank you for tuning in for another episode and inshallah see you all next week thank you Dear listeners, thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Smiley Professional Podcast with your host, Samira Ali. Join us again next week for another wonderful, inspirational story.